hello to all the ladies, gents, and everyone else in the audience. I am so grateful and glad that you decided to come by and listen. And welcome back to the two-parter of episode two of Did You Hear? We Are Here, the Susical Stories podcast, where we talk about anything, everything, and all things Susical, created by a fan for the fans. Uh, when we last left off, we talked about the first half of the show's history uh, regarding its initial concept, workshops, readings, the original team, and its source material, and why uh, it was believed to be successful. If you haven't watched the last episode, go check it out so you can understand what we're talking about, because it's going to get a little bit weird here. Uh, you don't need to watch the very first episode to understand this, but, you know, it'd be nice if you did. Um, but it's not required, so totally up to you. But go do go check out episode two, part one, before you listen to this. But otherwise, you know, if you have... Uh, sit back, relax, and we are going to pick up right where we left off with the arrival to the Colonial Theater in Boston. So when going into Boston, the team's initial thought was that they felt there wasn't a lot that needed or wanted to be changed with the show mostly because of the success with the reading and workshop from before that was able to satisfy both them and the audience with how much creative freedom they had with these stories and the ability to take these bareback, laid-back, um, pretty much empty settings and with these mini props that could pretty much be mistaken for like garage sale items you would find on the street and it gave them the advantage and allowance to think of their own worlds and ideas and images of how this this place could look like and these characters, um, which were also benefited by the actors and how the show was written to have to be these anthropomorphic characters with human hearts and souls. Um, so that way it was like children could like them for being these very nice and cute and very um, full of personality animals and the adults could appreciate them for still being these down-to-earth, simple, um, everyday people. Um, and for the most part, they were very confident in the direction and who they wanted to keep for the show and how they wanted the story to function. Again, very similar to Into the Woods where these where these stories would come together from a similar author or genre and mush into one with a main focus that really tied them all together. And they found that they really had that and had a good start to really jump them in to getting ready for Broadway. The only, excuse me, uh, difficult thing that they would later find was making the physical set of the show and making it into... Um, a satisfying visual appeal for Broadway because as great as the simplicity was of having little to no things for the workshops and reading, it wouldn't really work for Broadway because um, depending on the story, it could really make or break the show because you may have a great story, but the people in the audience may get distracted by how the show looks or you may have a good look of the show, but it may distract them from, uh, like, you may have uh, a good story, but it's distracted by how bad the set 
good or bad the set looks. That that's what I mean. So, um, and it was also something to keep in mind was how Dr. Seuss was also so successful with his stories was that he was able to take these, uh, these, uh, information, this information and morals and values and common quote unquote common sense and knowledge, um, and other things that we had within our limited world that was bounded by the sciences of reality and uh, broaden them to more audiences with his with these ideas and concepts and lessons that could be very universal and be at the same time on that scale visually because of there was no restraint when it came to cartoons on physics or science or what was deemed normal and appropriate by society standards he just let it flow however the story deemed it fit and it just would it would form these new and bizarre characters that were never seen before and these new words that would be completely made up but still had still somehow made sense with uh the purpose of the story and the purpose Leicester served when guiding the story and it just made it so it could be enjoyed by both young and old audiences um that could un- be understood by everyone essential or anyone essentially so they were thinking well how are we gonna sort of take that really crucial piece of the story and the heart of the show and adapt it into a 4D theatrical Broadway setting where in Broadway world, it's expected to be very big and brand and uh, brassy and um, just all over the place um, or fancy, you know? So uh, this kind of led to them having some issues um, with the creatives and it got very chaotic to a point where the producers had to kind of come in and take some creative liberties um, instead of just being on the business side of things and that took away some of the power and freedom that Aaron's and Flaherty had when being these sort of ringleaders of the show Um, and one of the things was that uh, when it came to this set and sort of whole idea of bringing this whimsy world into the real world was with original um, set uh, set designer uh, Eugene Lee, and he gave um, the top people like three choices on what they could have for a set. One of them was the crazy version, which was very similar to Eric Idle's envision for the show, and just being very overwhelming and in your face, kind of with these explosives and smokes coming out of one way and these actors and animals popping out another way and all these props flying out of the air and things going left and right and crawling all over and into the audience. Um, There was the bare bones back version, which I mentioned before, very simple, not a whole lot to it, but again, with imagination, it could really give people like, like something that satisfied them in their own brain and even though it wasn't a lot on stage and kind of left for more to be had visually um 
it, the imagination would really come in handy in sort of saving that um, and giving them something that maybe they couldn't, it couldn't be expressed on a physical stage, but with what they had, it really helped to sort of elevate um, this idea of this world without actually having to make it like a solid world on the stage, you know? Um, or they could try their luck and maybe with some really careful and thought out like craftsmanship and work, they could maybe make the best of both. Um, so they gave it some thought and they figured, well, after the success of the reading and the workshop and we kind of need to save money with how our budget's going, um, they decided that they were going to go with the bare bones version. And this went, unfortunately, despite everything from before, not really working their favor, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, another issue they ran into in terms of the physicality of the show was the costumes. So with the original designer of that, Catherine Zuber, she was met with the task of making the actors look like their Dr. Seuss characters, except she kind of ended up going a little too overboard and maybe a tad bit too crazy with it, and it made them look too stuffed and mushy and over-the-top and cartoony and too literal to, like, the cartoons, you know? And it was to the point where you couldn't really see and interpret the actors on stage and rather only their costumes. So it was less of these anthropomorphic characters from before with human nature in them and more so just literal mascots that were just copy and pasted almost like from a 3D printer into the real world and they were rejected from all the sports leagues. <laughs> um and it was even to a point where Lynn Ahrens was sitting in the back of the theater one night in Boston and started crying and saying, oh no, it's a children's musical, isn't it? Um, and I can understand what she means because the themes of the show are very deep and mature, which I will also talk about later. And it's not exactly to be taken as like a lighthearted Disney kind of thing. Um, but at the same time, it's like, it's not exactly like this edgy, um, dark, dangerous show that people had were expecting with the private productions, especially with producers and other audience members that they thought was a different take on Dr. Seuss um, from their childhoods, um, different than the, their childhoods and what was being promoted through the marketing, which was a mixture of both like adult-ish and kind of kid-ish because it was like these Dr. Seuss um, like characters and images but in the background there was like a city so and the city looks kind of dark bluish and gloomy so it was it was a choice it was it was definitely a mixture it's just it always made me curious as to why because I never really understood um and I'm sure they never really understood what they were trying to go with the mark with that through the marketing either. But anyway, um, that's where they kind of had an issue with the costumes as well as like the uh, the direction starting to shift with the show. And it wasn't that Zuber's, Zuber's designs were bad. It's just that Aaron's and Flaherty had uh, a different approach with the show and their original vision. And they didn't want the characters to look like 
the cartoons literally um with the with their physical design um it kind of like with the Grinch show um in the, at the old globe and in Minneapolis but rather to be depicted as individuals they all had these certain and unique quirks that could be um represented through these human everyday clothes so you know again just you take like a sweatshirt or something tied around your waist you're a bird or you have a helmet on and some knee pads you're a monkey or you have an umbrella you're a who you have a gray shirt you're an elephant blah 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 blah. you know it's like you kind of get the point um and zuber was really ready because she just was again one of the people so in love with the show and what it was trying to tell that she was ready to make the adjustments as she was starting to trip back trim back some things but still keep this image of having a ear and tail for Hor- ears and tails for horton um but sh- again at the same time she was like guys i know what it looks like but you can just say the word and i will i will make it change like that this is just like a placeholder it it's not set in stone you know it's not it's not the final thing that i've made just let me know what 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 you want to do and i will work with you to make it happen and the next thing you know she was fired which was really sad because the everyone on the team loved her and she was really helpful and collaborative and sweet and just willing to do anything to help with the show and just to see her that later that day like crying in an alleyway really helped with the confidence and positivity that they were trying to maintain with the show yeah so anyway um i i hope that she's gotten better in her career i probably should have looked more into her when see when uh researching this but um one thing i was i did find was that this really was like a nice show for her with her art artistry and creativity so uh you know bless her and hopefully she was more successful in life in this and that she got better treatment than how it went when the producers took over so the next day uh she was replaced by costume designer william ivy long to help redesign the show and what he the first thing he did was that he told the cast to go out to any store they wanted that was local or online you know macy's target whatever it was in the boston area and just buy all black clothing just traditional black clothing that just had nothing to them um just, it just like kind of camouflaged them with the back of the set so he could have some time to stall uh, while that they would stall, they would give him some time to des- design and construct these new costumes that would be appealing both for the, sh- for the show and for the Broadway stage. Um, and that, um, you know, at, at the same time while this was happening, Eugene Lee, uh, who was, the, again, the set designer, uh, he finally got to his breaking point where he ar- when he argued to the Weislers, the producers, that he thought that the technical elements were being used as sort of scapegoats uh, when they thought his sets were the biggest issue. So he just could not find a common ground with the producers, and he just finally gave up and left. So that's two 
people we got down and out of the show who were part of the process from the beginning and for people who were also there with them it just really hurt to see and did not really help with the levels of hope and and uh you know happiness with still working on the show um a final thing was with the original director frank galati the now i'm sorry the now late great frank galati i found out the news uh, the other day may he rest in peace uh he was known for being a great actors director and uh really helping actors to get into their characters ideals and goals and motivations and their personalities um that would help them with their contributions to the story and how they this was again a very character driven story and that with how he went about doing his job that would really help benefit the actors and um the show when things got a little too blurry but again because of all the new changes that were coming in and out of the door um they really needed someone to just take everything and form it in a line and then say this is what we're doing uh we're gonna do it like this and there doesn't need to be a debate on it 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 can be it's not satisfying to everyone but at least it's agreeable. So, um, but they apparently the producers didn't really find that in Galati and instead sought him as too collaborative, quote unquote. Um, so when Susical, I guess in this case, needed a show doctor, if you will, to make these really crucial changes that would al- that would alter the future of the show, they brought in. Uh, Kathleen Marshall, the choreographer, her brother, uh, Rob Marshall, to help out. And after a while, Galati just was pushed to the sidelines and soon began to see uh, what the show was becoming and how it was very, very different from the original uh, direction that he gave, as lo- along with his suspicions um, with how, how much... How much collaboration he really had left in this project when compared to Rob Marshall um and it turned out that he was right because one day he kind of was talking with the Weislers and throughout their sort of meeting they were pretty much implying the whole time that they didn't want him around anymore and with that he just he got on a plane and he just went back home out of disappointment and sadness feeling like he had just been like taken out of a really special like group project or some part of it was just kind of ripped out and broken right in front of him and it was again these people that who were just part of the project from the beginning and seemed to really all be on the same page when trying to make a show and were really willing to do anything to make sure it remained the success that they had seen before and all of a sudden just be thrown out into the street in some cases, literally, and never get to know, like, why they, why it was really the case from a reasonable standpoint, and what they would see their show become, which was nothing that they had known from their experience. So, um, with the original creatives gone, the producers decided to go in a different direction of making the show a huge Broadway razzle-dazzle spectacle 
and Rob wanted to take the audience on this fanciful pl- uh, journey to this place with familiar and iconic Dr. Seuss characters that could serve as entertaining and engaging with both children and adults, but at the same time, it gave them the cost of not really having the whole point of the story and messages of humanity being brought out and training them in just for, you know, it's it's nice when you see it, but you don't really feel anything inside internally other than this is pretty looking, but is it pretty is it pretty on the inside just as it is on the outside? And it's kind of hard to tell when you have all that overwhelming Broadway spectacle up in your face. Um, and when driving the, into the idea of making the show a huge Broadway spectacle, again, they just really forgot the original concepts that made Seussical what it was, it was always meant to be, and who or what it was originally constructed for which was a story for anyone, um, by anyone, that really gave us these stories we knew before, but gave them these deeper and more eternal, mature elements that was a show about people, for people. Um, Again, I'm very repetitive in this, I'm sorry, but this was mainly how the notes sounded when I was typing them. Um, But anyway, um, as the show continued to progress and get further and further away from how it began, um, pop influences began to find their way um, into its score, and there was really nothing Aaron's and Flaherty could do to stop it, because they were just given these these orders from the top people, and if they wanted to still maintain the bit of freedom and uh, power that they had with the show and their score, then they had to make the adjustments needed and desired. So this came to the cost and removal of some of the things um, with the character songs, such as Notice Me Horton, which a lot of us know today as one of the more popular songs of the soundtracks. Um, it was originally supposed to be a short ballad, uh, about Gertrude McFuzz trying to get Horn to notice her for who she is, um, despite everything she's been through with her tail and her self-esteem and feeling like, um, you know, that maybe she could be someone more if she were with Horton. Um, and despite it being a fun, you know, upbeat, uh, romantic piece, it just felt like the main point of it and heart was just kind of missing um, in the version we now know because there was a verse that they cut. And now I I have my own feelings about this, but I'm going to save them for the next episode where I talk about my everything about how I feel about the show and its changes and its history. But for now, I'm just going to state them for the facts that they were. And for them, they just thought that the pop and sort of, again, the sound the the senses of the song were overtaking the the real emotional and mental effect that it had on people as well as the story because the whole thing was that you know despite uh wanting to talk about her feelings Gertrude is still constantly being ignored by Horton because he is so desperate to find the who's um that he will 
that he will make it his only focus and just block out everything else that the world that the world is and has been because it's just been so cruel to him that this is really all he has left and with Gertrude she feels the same towards him because before she wasn't really a whole lot you know she just felt invisible compared to everyone else and it was like what's the point if I were just to disappear one day no one would even notice um I'm just that plain and simple and forgettable but with you I feel like maybe I do have a purpose and have reason to keep going and to actually be here for a for something besides myself or someone besides myself so um with this cut verse it just felt like she kind of stopped talking about that and focused more on her appearance um which she did for one verse but in the cut verse that not a lot of people know of she is more truthful about her feelings and her thoughts when talking to Horton um so we know the the first verse that we all know I'm sorry not the first verse but the verse we all know right before this cut verse was my eyes are too small I have very large feet and I'm not very proud of my pitiful tweet but I've now got a tail that is something to see and then um, the cut verse was in the same melody, but it just went that much more um, into what she was trying to say with um, why it's so important for her, for him to notice her, and why she just why she went through so much trouble to take pills more than than recommended and just alter herself in her form. And her, her personality so much, all for this one elephant, and the verse went like this because, uh, and mind you, again, it was because, um, she just found her sort of being and purpose with Horton, and this is her. This verse explains is her trying to tell him that you know, despite feeling like I had I was nothing and was never going to be anything before you you change that for me and i really want you to see how much you mean to me so it went like this no one's ever looked twice at miss gertrude mcfuzz but this tale makes me worth almost twice what i was and i did it for you so you notice me more um and there was also, so that was that verse, and I thought it was very pretty when I first heard it, because there is a recording with of Notice Me Horton with this in it, and it's very, very nice sounding. Um, but there was also another cut verse um, where instead of uh, this, the, the version we know today, that the song goes into the part that sounds like, I was just a dull one only yesterday. Um, it goes into a different verse where it again it's a part of the solo version that was originally just intended for Gertrude and not the duet with her and Horton um, to better focus on her character and her motives and her thoughts and focus in that scene um, and what she was trying to accomplish so 
um, there was another verse that that was originally in the place of that that was describing more about, you know, again, very similar to what I said before. Despite everything I felt about myself before, I'll still keep pushing through because I love you that and I care about you that much. So that sounded something like this. Um, well, my voice may be shrill and I may not be smart, but I know you are kind and a powerful heart. And I'll do what a bird has to do to be heard with a bird who is not, I'm sorry, what a bird who is not being heard has to do to make you notice me, Horton. And then it goes on for the rest of how it normally goes and how we know it today to be. Um, and it just, people, the Aaron's and Flaherty felt like we were just kind of losing what they knew the show to be when they first started working on it. And it felt like it was just being dramatically and radically altered for the sake of, like, the times and what would be profitable and not really what would be satisfying as a narrative or um, a character piece. Another thing was that um, the Lorax song in section was also cut due to time constraints as the show was going at about three hours and it really didn't serve any relevance or meaning to the show other than just to be kind of a Dr. Seuss um, reference and piece and just kind of having a way for Jojo to get home from the military. And it just didn't really fit. It felt really random and out of place put compared to everything else in the story that at least was introduced in the beginning um, and not just put in act two and only spoken about once and then never again. Um, they did attempt to shorten it from the, uh, about the 12 to 13 minutes that it was originally, and they try to make it five to seven, which I just learned recently because there was a video released of the five to seven shortened version um, that I actually didn't think was true before, but now seeing that video, it turns out it was. Um, but a Flaherty figured that if they weren't going to do the whole thing, then they weren't going to do it at all. Because if you hear it online, you can go on YouTube and look it up. It sounds very much like a TV performance and not the whole thing that they were trying to um, tell. So um, they also try to put him, the Lorax in a poppy second reprise of Sala Salu. I really hope this wasn't true because if you know Sala Salu and what it sounds like, the poppiness, I can really understand now how that would ruin the show and why the modern day, um, the modern day music culture just was not doing the show any favors. It's great, but it's not, it doesn't fit the vibe of the show. the ensemble, Eddie Corbick, received a phone call from Aaronson Flaherty that told him that the number was just being cut altogether and that they understood from a business side and also personally if he didn't want to continue with the show any further and they would not hold it against him as a grudge or 
to for their personal feelings and totally uh, understood and respected anything he did from this point on um, with with what he with his involvement with the show. And despite this, Corbick would go on to stay with the show actually up with its Broadway run as well up until February of 2001 as he was still in love with the show and didn't want to give it up on it just yet. Uh, which really tells you how much Seussical meant to everyone, because despite all its ups and downs and the chaos it has gone through behind the scenes and really making it a stressful and challenging experience for everyone involved up to that point, um, they it, they just showed that they still wanted it to succeed, and they really did all of this out of love. Maybe maybe not the producers, but um, th- this, um, they still wanted to like see the show blossom into from the seed that they had seen in the workshops that showed to be very promising and impactful and meaningful to everyone who watched who has watched it grow since then um so much so that they would stick with it through the hard times regardless um and so the final change that they had was also the inclusion of two new actors Anthony Blair Hall, um, who would also be the alternate JoJo, and would go back and forth with shows for Anthony Blair Hall. I'm sorry, for Andrew Keenan Bulger, who um, uh, would like take time to do schoolwork one day and then do the show the next, and do you know, and the same thing would happen for Anthony. So back and forth and back and forth, and they also included David Shiner uh, as the cat in the hat because Andrea Martin actually had to. Um, go back home and watch her son graduate high school, so she wasn't able to come back for for Boston. Um, so the team was like, "Well, what are we gonna do? We need we need a cat in the hat." And during a meeting, they're like, "Well, we need someone who's very um, loose and all over the place and very flexible, um, and sh- and ha- and show body language that really both resembles a cat and the sort of." Um, loony nature of this character as as a whole um and they thought well why don't we get like a clown because clowns are really good at that type of acting and uh at the time there was a very successful broadway show going on called uh fool's moon um but starred bill Irwin and david shiner um and bill Irwin for them apparently was too expensive so they um they're like, let's bring David in instead. You know, if Bill's not interested, I'm sure we can find something to do with David. Um, and that was also a challenge because David had not sung since or done any real verbal acting since college. Um, he was a mime. So uh, he they really had to work with him, the music directors and Aaron's and Flaherty, to get him on the right track that they wanted him to help progress the show uh, and he did kind of try because he even tried to incorporate his own experiences with clowning and miming into the show such as like before the opening number he would ha- uh, I'm sorry after the opening number he would have an uh, a little like five minute ish moment where he just did a silent movie act kind of scene um, by himself to really hype up the audience and get them ready for the rest of the show. And uh, during a, a number that they would add later on, uh, A Day for the Cat in the Hat, um, they he would try to, like, 
uh, mime the whole thing with the other actors because he wasn't confident in his singing. So he uh, tried to make the whole thing a silent pantomime um, that would just be more comedic and not really make a whole lot of sense in the grand scheme of things. So, I mean, one worked and the other one didn't. Um, both of which were cut for Broadway. Um, and so with all these changes, they finally decided to open the show on August 27th, I believe. August 27th, 2000. And they did not see- receive a warm critical reception. Um, it was told that the show was uh, not really successful with their Into the Woods style of writing choice and they could not uh, combine all of its plots, characters, side stories, and ideas into a flowing and satisfying narrative um, or themes or messages. Um, and it just felt really overwhelming and especially with the over-the-top costumes and dark sets just clashing and not doing any favors to better itself or the story. Um, one critic even went as far to say that a phrase to sum up the brilliance of Dr. Seuss might be sophisticated whimsicality. A phrase that might sum up the blandness of Seussical could be middle-of-the-road literal mindlessness. Um, and it was just so crushing because from the audience's point of view, it just seemed like, you know, maybe despite a little confusion, maybe some disappointment here or there, it was still a really fun show and it was nice to see Dr. Seuss in this whole new medium that... Um, you know, could be expressed through more than just the page. But it was not, it was just not the case. And to add insult to injury, um, there was uh, a lot of drama going on with uh, these online chat rooms and threads and groups that grew more and more um, as a way to create a view and cr- critique space um, for the show's progress which had never really been seen before or after um, Seussical, which made it a very unique situation that they were dealing with this new form of communication. Because, you know, before, it's like the internet wasn't didn't really exist and thrive that much that this would be an issue. And afterwards, you have to sign something like an NDA to uh, say that, like, you, you're not, nothing of the show is going to be, like, what stays in the, what happens in the room stays in the room kind of thing. Um, and instead of being able to work in a privacy and peace without criticisms, um, not only was there talk amongst audience members, uh, who would go into chat rooms and give their common negative two cents about the show, but there was also, uh, a rat in the cast or crew that, uh, leaked backstage information to this place called All That Chat for the public to view and opinionate as they please, um, making it so pretty much anyone had the ability to dance and do as they would on those shows pre-made deathbed uh, and grave. Um, an example of one of these leaks was that Andrew Keen Bulger uh, was gonna was in talks to be let go to his voice being changed for puberty. Um, and he ended up finding out not through the actual higher-ups, but actually through reading it online. So that was just, imagine being that, like, little kid. That must be, like, who's, like, 12, around 12 to 15. That, and just, pu- as if puberty isn't enough. As a teen, I know. Um, and so 
out of guilt and request from Aaron DeFlaherty, he was actually asked to stay for a few months because of how bad everyone felt for him. Um, there was other things where uh, it was a cast member or crew member was reported to ha- be having a very aggressive argument with their in-real-life partner during intermission of one of the shows. I don't know if that's true or not, but it was said in the news at one point. Um, so um, they to try and make uh, uh, nego- to negotiate and try to make amends and peace with uh, these groups, they actually invited a critic a few times from those groups to go behind the scenes of the show and maybe say some positives that could um, change and maybe better the uh, public's uh, uh, thoughts and perceptions of the show. Um, and this person was coming into the show every other night and then going home at the same time to write reviews and thoughts and all the things ch- that changed and stayed in the show. Um, it was until there was an encounter, a, a stage door encounter with Kevin Chamberlain, um, or again the invite from the peep from the producers. No one knows for sure, but Kevin Chamberlain does recall. Um, going to the stage door one night and he was met with a teenage boy who was very much going through puberty and was about 14 years old and introduced himself as the online critic um, and not the middle-aged man, um, sophisticated Broadway critic that the cast and crew had anticipated. episode much like the episode of before i realized that if i try to include uh, both boston and broadway like similar to i thought i was going to include everything last time but i didn't um and the reasons are both the same i figured it would be way too long and i got the advice from my creative director that maybe i should make this into a part three so i'm gonna end this episode here um at the end of Boston and the part three finale will end with Broadway and the continuations that have happened since its closing, as well as the rewrites and regional productions that have uh, successed it. So until then, thank you guys so much for listening in. Um, Be sure to follow along at our social medias, which will be in the link tree. As always, we don't have a Patreon or Patreon type thing yet for like money and things, but the more people we get to listen the more we might have something like that where you can you know maybe help us through that way so um and until then thank you guys so much and until next time see you on Salasalu. all the things you can think.